you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 is where we're going to be this morning. As you turn in there, I would like to thank um, our elders who love and serve and care for this church uh, in a variety of ways, ways that um, so many of you guys don't even get to necessarily always see or at least pay attention to. Um, They are men who love the gospel, who love the Lord and love you deeply and are passionate about seeing the gospel proclaimed and seeing um, growth in our lives, seeing us take steps to grow and becoming more Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. And so I'm so thankful uh, that we have uh, that, that we, we have a church, we have an elder board who loves us and cares for us. Um, it's an elder board who allows, you know, it was a, I was able to be gone for the summer because uh, the elders were able to step in and care and lead and, and take over extra responsibilities that they don't normally do. Um, they are a passionate group of men who love, love you deeply, and I'm so thankful to serve alongside them. I'm so thankful that I don't have to do this on my own, that, I, that we have a team of men who have um, a variety of backgrounds and love and care for one another and have unity uh, and mutual submission to one another. It is, it is really uh, a joy to serve alongside them. So Dave, Wayne, Daniel, thank you for everything that you do and the ways that you love and care for our church. We, we love and appreciate you guys very much. Yeah, we can clap for the elders. Yes. Um, all right, so Galatians 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we've been walking through this letter. And I said last week that the passage we looked at last week, the end of chapter 2, was uh, really considered the crux and the heartbeat of this letter, this Paul walking through this idea of justification by grace uh, through faith. And so if that's the heartbeat, if that's like the big point that Paul is trying to get through to us, this freedom in Christ, this idea of being justified with God, then what do we got to do with the rest of the letter? Like, we already hit the big one, so like, why are we, we still got like four chapters to go. Why? Because we have this one big idea that he, that he laid out. Justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul has clung and stood firm in the reality of this gospel message, that this is where salvation is found, that we cannot add to it, take away from it, that this is where salvation is found in Christ That the good news that God in the flesh came to earth to die for us and rose again, that message Paul was willing to die for, it is essential. But too often, we put the gospel in a box. We designate the gospel for, that's for later. That's for afterlife. That's for when I'm older. That's for when I get cleaned up. That's for when I get things figured out. Then, Then I'll worry about this gospel thing. It only really matters. It only really affects me after I'm dead. It doesn't have any influence here and now. It's a for later thing, and that's just not true. And so Paul is going to spend the bulk of the next couple of chapters arguing against that reality. Through a variety of different illustrations and teaching points, Paul is going to show us that the gospel, yes, it does bring salvation, but that's not all it does. We are not only saved by the gospel, but we are transformed and made more and more like Christ through the gospel. As Tim Keller says, you never leave the gospel behind because it's too important. It's too powerful. So we're going to enter into this time of hearing the word of God. And I pray that we would be captivated by the reality that the gospel is to be rediscovered, reapplied, relied on daily, moment by moment. And that is what Paul is going to push and press into us over and over again over the next couple of chapters, that we cannot let go of the gospel. We cannot walk away from it for any moment. Because as we do, if we let the gospel go, we start losing our whole focus. We start losing our identity itself because it is grounded and rooted in the gospel. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump into Galatians 3. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. God, we pray for our kids as they are in Grace Place, as they are worshiping with us. Um, Lord, I pray that we would, uh, not only our Grace Place leaders, but also all of us in, in our community, that we would uh, love and care for the children of our church, that we would show them the love and care of you to them in the way that we interact, that they might learn as we worship, as we engage with you, as we sing, as we pray, as we read, as we hear the word proclaimed, I pray that we would uh, be lights to that next generation that you have blessed this church with. Lord, we pray for, um, God, I pray for Addison Street Community Church, uh, for Pastor Will uh, and and the saints down the road that you would continue to stir them up, that you would continue to encourage them and strengthen them, and as they look forward to taking new steps in, in, um, in how, uh, how they go about ministry, as, as they continue to grow in you, Lord, I pray that you would watch over them. Lord, we thank you for their friendship, for their encouragement, for uh, the, um, the true relationship that you've been able to build between our churches over the years, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen them as they look to seek to make you famous in and amongst our neighborhood. God, we pray for, pray for our missionaries who are around the world, who are doing work around the world, even if they aren't necessarily stationed there, Lord, that uh, we have missionaries here in the city working. We have missionaries working uh, with organizations in Africa. We have them in Europe, God. We have missionaries that we love and care for and support, Lord. We pray that you would protect them and their families as they continue to seek to pursue you and, and proclaim the gospel in places where it's sometimes hard and exhausting. God, you are on the move. You are doing a work in and among our community, in and among this world. You don't need us, but you invite us to be part of what you are doing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take steps to be able to walk into those moments, those opportunities you provide for us to serve and love and reflect you to this world. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Galatians 3, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you all the nations, in you shall all the nations be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. We're going to stop there for this morning. Notice, in, you know, in chapters one and two, as we've been looking through this letter, in chapters one and two, Paul often uses the, the phrase "brothers." Brothers and sisters, family, he refers to those, uh, those Christians in the churches of Galatia, and he refers to them as family, brothers and sisters. But that's changed. Here we get to chapter 3. O foolish Galatians. O foolish Galatians. That word is a lot stronger. It's, a, it's one of those words, it's, it's not very smart Galatians. If I say the actual word, I get a timeout in our house, so that doesn't work. O foolish Galatians. 
Who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Who has conned you? How have you fallen for this false message? The sharpness of the words of Paul should underline and emphasize for us just how serious of a situation he is dealing with and they are finding themselves in. Because this wasn't just about a seat at the table. This was what was at stake here for Paul was the gospel itself. It was their very souls. He said back in chapter 1, he said, I am so amazed that you are turning so quickly from the gospel. You heard the truth. You know the truth. When I left, things were good. That's why Paul was able to leave. He, he came to the churches. He was able to establish. He preached the gospel. He was able to establish a community, establish a group of men to raise up to lead the church, and then he would leave. That was Paul's thing. He would go from town to town, help get a church basically planted and started, and then he would move on. But he wouldn't move on until he had leaders, until he had people set up who could continue keeping things moving as he left. And that's why he left. He said, things were good when I left. But now you have turned to this evil, false message. How foolish, how short-sighted. It'd be easy for Paul to just, you know, wipe his hands on this one and just walk away. But he doesn't. He won't. He chooses, rather, to pour into these people, to continue to love and teach and reach out to them. Even though they're in the midst of choosing to walk in darkness, he says, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to give up. And I think there's something there for us to hear about persistently pursuing those believers who we know, who we have a relationship with, who are wandering in darkness. To not write them off, to not give up on them, to not just say, well, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. But no, if they are truly our brothers and sisters in Christ, we continue to pursue them, continue to pray for them, and in love pursue them because what's at stake is their very soul. Paul is flabbergasted that they would walk away considering, as he says, what they knew, what they experienced. Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. You know, I think it's interesting when you look at the New Testament letters, when you look at Paul and Peter and James, the writer of Hebrews, and more often than not, when they talk about Jesus, they don't really talk about baby Jesus. And they don't really talk about, like, Jesus, the son of the carpenter. They don't even really spend a ton of time focusing on the ministry years, on the preacher, on the miracle worker. Most of the time when the New Testament writers talk about Jesus, they talk about him and him crucified. Because in that is everything. Because it changes everything. It's there where salvation happens. It's there where our new lives begin. It comes from Christ and him crucified. Now this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians was written long enough after the fact that none of them would have seen Jesus crucified. So what does Paul mean when he says, you saw with your eyes Christ publicly portrayed as crucified if they didn't actually see it? Paul is getting to what he's already talked about, and he's going to say it again in verse 4, the hearing with faith. He's going to talk about how you guys understood the gospel that because it's been proclaimed to you, it's been preached to you, you experienced it through hearing the gospel proclaimed as we see in verse 2. This idea of publicly portrayed is the idea of a billboard for us in our day. Think about driving on the expressway, driving on some country highway when there's nothing else around and then you see a billboard and you can't help but notice it. It's in front of your face. It's nothing else competing with it. Publicly portrayed, that's vivid graphic image is what that, is what that word means. Clear and tangible communication of the gospel. What they heard was spirit-driven, passionate, clear articulation of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins in our place. And they heard that. And if you are truly a Christian, if you have truly believed, though we are 
thousands of years removed, you can have that moment where in your mind's eye you can see Christ crucified. You have that moment where it's so clear to you the reality of what Christ has done to you, done for you, whether or not you were there to see it. Because being there to see it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. Galatians, you knew this. You know this. You heard this. I couldn't have preached it and lived it and had you experience it any clearer than had a billboard been right in your face. It was publicly portrayed. It was there for everyone to hear. It doesn't matter that you didn't literally see it with your own eyes because, I mean, how many people were on that hillside on that Friday? How many people did literally see him crucified and they did nothing but mock him? Just being there, just seeing him isn't the thing that's going to save you. It is by grace that you would have the truth revealed to you that in your mind's eye you would be able to see and understand the reality of what Christ has done for you. And so Paul, wanting to get to the heart of the matter, wanting them to reflect, wanting them to really think through what is it that we have believed, what is it that we have experienced, Paul goes through a series of rhetorical questions. Questions that I think we ourselves today would be wise to stop and consider this morning. He says in verse 3, or in verse 2, let me ask you only this. You know Paul's a preacher because he says, let me ask you only this, and then it's like six questions. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Like I said, this is a series of rhetorical questions. He's not looking for an actual answer. This is not call and response time. This is not short essay time. This is stuff they knew. They knew the answers in their hearts, cutting through all the, all the different misinformation, cutting through all the lies. They knew the answers to these in their hearts. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Every Christian believer, every person who has put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins has within them the Holy Spirit, receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells within us, guiding us, shaping us, teaching us, leading us, convicting us, rebuking us, doing all of these things. And if you are a believer, you have in you full and complete access to the Holy Spirit at all times. That same Holy Spirit that rested on people like Moses and Gideon and Samson and David and the prophets, that same Spirit that rained down on the day of Pentecost, the same Holy Spirit who dwelt within Jesus and raised him from the dead. The same one who indwells Peter later on, where Peter is walking by a lame beggar, and he says, I don't have any money to hand you, but I, ha I have the, the gift of this. Get up in the name of Jesus, and he walks. The Holy Spirit moving and shaping and, and convicting and challenging and building his church. That same Holy Spirit is in each and every one of us. Every one of us has that same access and power within us, but far, far too often we quench it. We don't listen to it. We ignore and we minimize it. And it leads us to making these half-hearted prayer requests of God because we don't really trust that the Spirit is in us. We give up reading and studying the Bible because we don't really trust that the Spirit's going to actually illuminate the text and help us understand to be moved and challenged by it. We refuse to respond to that nudging feeling we have to approach that person, to interact in that situation, to speak up at that dinner table. I mean, it's another sermon for another day, but I really believe that the church in America, our, our city that we love so much, our world really as it is today is in the shape that it's in because 
Christians don't live, believe, and pray like people who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. One of my mentors in seminary is a church historian, and one of his favorite eras to, to talk about, to write about, uh, is our areas, times in which revivals happened. Great revivals, like happened in New York, happened in Chicago, happened around the world. And when this topic would come up, when he would be teaching or, or talking about you know, some revival that he was studying or he wanted to talk about, Inevitably, when someone's talking about revival, somebody then asks the question, what do you think it's going to take to see another revival? To see mass, large groups of people coming to faith. When do you, how do you see that happening in America? How do we make that happen in America? And he would always often respond by quoting Jesus himself and just say, you do not have because you do not ask. We don't truly ask for that kind of a request. We don't ask those big, scary prayer requests. Because at the end of the day, we don't always truly believe that we have the power as individuals or as a collective to pray and pray that change to happen. What if we did? Because Scripture tells us we have access, complete and access and power of the Holy Spirit in us. Christ tells his followers and vicariously tells us all the amazing things he did all the amazing miracles, all the amazing teaching, all the, all the things that he did, the influence he had in those three years. He said, you're going to do even greater things. The Holy Spirit is on the move, and you can look around the world, you can look in different parts of the world in which the church is thriving, the church is growing. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of heartache and pain, the church continues to grow. Even in areas of our world where persecution is strong, the church continues to go forward. Is that because of the works of people or by the work of the Holy Spirit that is in these people? It's people listening and obeying the Holy Spirit in them. I said, that's a different sermon for a different day. Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is it because you worked? Is it because you kept the law? Is it because you were circumcised? Is it because you did a bunch of stuff? Is that why you have the Holy Spirit? Or did you receive the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on you because you had faith? by grace, through faith in Christ alone. How did you get the Spirit? Was it by faith or by works? How did it start? Go back and think about it. What was that time? How do you remember that that going down? They knew the answer to that question. We know the answer to that question. It wasn't us. It was the grace of God to give us the chance to place our faith in Christ alone in which we receive new hearts, new minds, a new self. And born out of that new self are works as an outflow from our faith. They are a result of the Spirit in us, not the producer of the Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 3 and asks another question. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish? Are you so ridiculous? Are you so concerned with doing? Are you so concerned with taking action, trying your hardest? Are you so caught up in trying to win and earn and impress that by having begun by the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ himself is the author and perfecter of our faith, the completer, the fulfiller of our faith. Paul asks, Paul's asking, so your faith started by the Spirit. He says, okay, he just answered the first question for us, right? How did it start, faith or works? Well, he says, it started from your faith. 
But now are you going to finish it yourself? You're going to complete it. That's, that's the plan. You on your own are going to make yourself more justified, more sanctified, more in line with God, not by and through the Holy Spirit, but on your own. That's, that's what you're going to go with. Are you so foolish to think that this miraculous thing that took you from rebel and enemy to son or daughter of the Most High God to co-heirs with Christ, this thing that took you from dead in your trespasses and sins to alive in Christ, this new relationship that has been built, this new identity that has been given, where the old has passed away and behold, the new has come, where your identity is wrapped in Christ. Remember we looked at 2.20 last week. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All of that happened by and through the grace of God, through the Spirit of God working in you. But now, you're going to take care of it on your own. You couldn't get to where you are on your own, but now you got this. Having begun by the Spirit, you now are going to be perfected by the flesh, by your works. Hey, Jesus, thanks for getting the ball rolling. Thanks for the push. I'll take it from here. Because that worked so well before because it worked so well before you met Christ? No. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been there to begin with. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone looking for the grace and mercy of Christ to begin with. The MRI showed we were in need. The law shows we are in need, that we are suffering, that we have a problem, that Christ fulfilled that issue, that Christ paid that penalty. But now you want to go back to trying to white-knuckle grip steering your way through life as if somehow it's going to be easier than it was the first time. But we do it. We think that's the way life is to be led by a Christian. That the gospel brings us this new relationship with God. Thanks, that's awesome, amen. And then we need to make it more complex. We need to do more, we need to be more, we need to try more, we need to do better. The gospel is the starter, but then it's on us to make ourselves more like Christ, more Christian. As Tim Keller said, you don't leave the gospel behind. It's not something you grow out of. It's the thing that grows you. The gospel justifies you with God, sanctifies you, which is a fancy word for saying you makes you more and more like Christ. It is when we allow the gospel to filter every thought, every decision, every interaction, that is when we see us grow and becoming more and more like Christ. So we can't leave the gospel behind. We can't just move on from it. It is essential for both our salvation, yes, but also in our day-to-day -day living until Christ calls us home. Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, answers this question about who completes what. In Philippians 1.6, he says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It is God that calls. It is God that initiates the relationship with us and will see it through until the day we are standing before him. So let's get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the work of Christ. Because just by becoming a Christian, we have already admitted that we need that, we, that what we need, that what we want to do is to focus ourselves on Christ, right? Baseline Christianity is to say, I admit I am a sinner. I admit I can't do this on my own, that I cannot earn or work for my salvation. I need help. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. That's the baseline. So we all agree that that's where we're at, but then life happens, right? Life happens, and it's like we get saved, and now, like, I don't know what to do with my hands, so I'm just going to start doing stuff. 
I'm going to start doing stuff. I'm going to start doing something, start working. And all of a sudden, we confuse living by faith with doing a bunch of actions so that we are more like Christ. It's no wonder that Paul calls them fools. It's a foolish way to live. And so he continues on with his questions. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did you suffer for nothing? Did you experience so much? Did you suffer so much? Did you endure hardships for the sake of the gospel for nothing? After enduring trials and persecutions and tribulations and moments of frustration and temptation, after you've been through so much, now you're just going to walk away? What was the point of going through all of that? Paul tells them, if you go into Acts, I think it's Acts 14, he tells them before he leaves the churches in Galatia, he says, I'm going to leave. Things are going to get hard. Things are going to be messy. It's going to be hard. Stay firm in your faith. He promises them things are going to be bad. It's going to be hard. And then it gets hard. It gets messy. And Paul is saying, you suffered for your faith. You have endured, and if you are just going to go back and turn back to the law, back to works righteousness, then what was the point of going through all of the things you have endured? You suffered for nothing. It had no purpose. Or is it possible that you endure, what you endured, what you went through, it wasn't in vain, but it actually strengthened you? That the Holy Spirit not only redeemed you and called you to himself, but has been refining you like gold in the fires. Just like he said at the end of chapter 2, if our works could get the job done, then Christ died for no purpose. To go back to the law, to go back to being trapped on the never-ending, self-righteous treadmill that takes you nowhere is to say Christ's sacrifice and even my own experience were all for nothing and just a waste of time. But we know God doesn't waste time. His or ours. He doesn't waste our experiences. And so you might have times and seasons of your life when you're in it and you're going through it and you say, God, I have no idea what you're doing here. You might even get yourself removed from that. A couple of months, a couple of weeks, a couple of years, you might look back on that season and say, God, I still don't know what you were doing there. But that doesn't mean it was a waste. It doesn't mean God wasn't at work. It doesn't mean it was pointless. God uses everything to teach and to train and to refine and strengthen and grow us. He has not forgotten about you or stopped being intimately involved in your life. So do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. Do not lose sight, but rather fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and continue to pursue him. Paul's got one more question for us in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Pay attention to the tenses there in verse 5. He who supplies, that's he's supplying it, not he has supplied or he's going to supply, he's currently supplying the Spirit. And works miracles, not worked miracles, not going to work miracles, working miracles now. They aren't things of the past or hopes for what's to come. This is what was happening in their midst. And I think this is why Paul was so adamant about seeing them continue in their faith in the gospel. They were seeing God move in and through them, and it wasn't because they signed up to serve once a month at church or bring something to a potluck. 
He asks, have you seen the miraculous? Brothers and sisters, have you seen the miraculous? Have you seen people healed? Have you seen lives changed? Have you seen newness and community and the Holy Spirit moving amongst a bunch of people who have no reason to have a relationship with one another, but because of the gospel, because of that thing that unites them, there is a relational family built there. Do you think that happens because a bunch of people check some stuff off some spiritual checklist? No, it's by faith. It is the byproduct of the grace of God to allow us to know the gospel and to experience the gospel and then to live in light of that gospel. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit does what he has always done and produce fruit in and through those who would live by faith. For example, Abraham. We see in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Over the course of the next couple of chapters, we're going to hear a lot about Abraham. So if you're looking for something to read this week, uh, along with Galatians, you guys know we're doing Galatians one chapter every day. Monday's Galatians 1, Tuesday's Galatians 2, Wednesday's Galatians 3. So Wednesday, you should guys get, really get into it since we're in Galatians 3. We're doing that every week until we get done preaching through Galatians. And you guys see, I'm taking some small chunks. We're going we're gonna to know Galatians. Along with reading Galatians, if you really want to get reacquainted with Abraham, you can go back to Genesis 12 and read from like 12 through like 18 or 20. Um, we'll give you a good idea, a good sense of God moving in the life of Abraham because he's going to come up a lot in the next couple of weeks. But so he cuts in and he talks about Abraham, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham, Abram actually. He's not even Abraham at this point. And he talks to him. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. In Genesis 15, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. God calls out to Abram and says, you're going to be blessed. You are going to have generations of blessings. And Abram says, God, this is a couple of chapters in, a couple of years into their relationship. He says, God, you've been talking about this generations. You've been talking about this line. I still don't have an heir. The next closest, if I die, the next closest who gets my land, who gets my lineage, isn't even someone related to me. It's one of my servants. God says, no, that's not the case. Your son will be your heir. And not only that, he takes him outside. He says, number the stars if you are able to. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to count them, Abram. That line doesn't really play for us in Chicago, right? We look up at night and you see like three stars and two of them are airplanes. Like, it doesn't really matter for us. But for Abram, he's out in a field in the middle of nowhere. The whole sky is lit up with stars, too vast to be counted. This was God de delivering an overwhelming blessing of a covenant. Not a contract, but a covenant. Because that's how our God works. God doesn't say, Abraham, if you do this, that, and the other thing, if you check all these boxes, then you will be a blessing. Then you will be blessed. 
says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. Your offspring shall be as the stars in the sky. It says there in verse 6 of chapter 15, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. He didn't get the righteousness of God because he was circumcised. That wouldn't come for another couple of years. He doesn't get the righteousness of God because of the law. The law wouldn't show up for another 400-something years. See, what Paul is doing here by taking us back to Genesis, by taking us back to Abraham, is to say, look, you guys want to talk about the law. You want to talk about Moses. You want to talk about the order and, and all of those things. Great. Amen for Moses. Amen for the law. But let's take it a step farther back. Let's go to Abraham, the father of the faith, the one we all trace our lineage to, the one who God started all of this with. Let's go back to him. How did he get his righteousness? How did he have a right relationship with God? Did he get it from the law? Nope, didn't exist yet. Did he get it from circumcision? Nope, hadn't happened yet. So how did Abraham get to have a right relationship with God? By grace through faith. Abraham heard what God said, heard God's promise, and believed and trusted. He said, I believe God is for me. He's going to be who he says he is. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Abraham shows it is possible to have righteousness, a right standing with God without the law because he did it before the law even existed. So then Abraham is for us today still our example, a guide to having a right relationship with God, not based on what we can do. It is by faith. Now if we go back to Galatians, hopefully I didn't just lose my place. If we go back to Galatians 3, in verse 7 it says, Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Jewish people, especially those Jewish leaders, loved to talk about how they were the children of Abraham, the descendants of him, that they were carrying on the lineage, carrying on the torch of Abraham. To be a son of is to carry on the name, to be a reminder, an emulator of your father. You carried that name. In John 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he asked them who their father is, and they replied, Abraham, because that's the standard answer for the Jewish people. And Jesus, in fact, tells them, no, your father is the devil because he's a liar and murderer just like you. Jesus was cold-blooded. Paul's picking up that same concept here. The true children of Abraham are those of faith. It wasn't the genetics or the law that tied the Israelites to Abraham. It was those who lived by faith. This concept is radically different than what the Jews believe. Because for thousands of years, it was God and the Israelites. They were the chosen people, and they were chosen, and they believed that the promise, the covenant, all of that was tied to Abraham, and it was tied to them because of their genetics, because they could trace themselves back to Abraham. That's why they thought they were in the line of promise, and they were wrong. Your standing, your relationship with God is yours. You do not receive it from mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, just because they were Christians, just because they went to church, just because you go to church, that is not what saves you. Nobody gets a plus one to heaven. It is your relationship, it is your faith for you to work out. 
this reality that it wasn't by works, but rather by faith, that it wasn't about genetics, but about faith. This changes everything, and this validates and establishes the Gentile believers as not some second-class citizen Christians, but as fellow co-heirs with Christ because of their faith. We see in verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It validates and establishes the Gentile believers. For those who are trying to say, well, there's the Jewish believers, there's the Gentile believers, but they don't really count because they won't get circumcised and live by the law. God says, no, I've been talking about this since the beginning. I'm going to go back to Genesis one more time. And I'm going to go even further back to Genesis 12. When God first calls Abram, Genesis 12, 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the original covenant between God and Abraham. It affirms that the promise is not just for the Israelites. That was never the plan, but for any and all who would put their faith in God. This is not just a New Testament concept where they rewrote history. The plan was always for Jesus to save all people. Hosea 2.23, I will have mercy on those with no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are now my people, and he shall say, you are my God. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. Transgressors are those outside of the law. Those are Gentiles. That's you and me. Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't, have to have a, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know that when it says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone, it means everyone. It was always the plan. Scripture always made it clear. The very scripture that these Jewish influencers, these Jewish leaders claimed to know and believe, if they truly believed it, they would see that what they were doing was putting hurdles and roadblocks in front of their brothers and sisters, in front of what God had already been planning to do since the beginning. Because of Abraham's faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. And because of his faith, a line of promise was started. One filled with a bunch of imperfect people. Liars and cheaters and prostitutes, the poor, the corrupt, the proud. Some of them weren't even having, some of them didn't even have Jewish genetics. But through the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, eventually we get to a baby born in a stable and he cries in a manger, and that would change everything. Because of that baby, the good news came, the good news of great joy. For who? For all people. Because that baby would be the savior of all people, of all nations of the world. He would be the blessed savior. He would be the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham. So then, in verse 9, are those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
Those who have put their faith in Christ are blessed. Blessed with the Holy Spirit. Blessed with peace with God. Blessed with the ability to have peace with one another. Blessed with joy. Blessed with tangible evidence and experience of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Blessed with the ability to truly rest and trust in someone outside of ourselves to lead and direct and guide us. Blessed to know that in all things God is in control. Christians are blessed because we have, we have those who have gone before us. We stand on the shoulders of men and women, as Hebrews would call them, the great cloud of witnesses. Men and women who were faithful and clung to the gospel so that it would continue to justify, continue to sanctify, continue to change lives and call people to himself. We are here today because of the faithfulness of those who heard the gospel, were transformed by the gospel, and lived the rest of their lives in light of the gospel. And we have the chance and opportunity to be those kind of people. Those who put their faith in Christ are blessed just like Abraham did. He didn't have all the answers. There in Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, take everybody that you love, take all your stuff, and take a walk. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. And he went. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know all of the theological implications. He knew a fraction of what we know about who God is just from the fact that we have Scripture, we have God revealing himself to us, but he knew enough. He heard from God and he trusted. That was enough for him. May the word of God be enough for us. May the gospel be more than enough for us. May it be what we think about when we open our eyes in the morning. May it be the thing that drives us throughout our day. May it be the thing that helps put us to sleep at night. And maybe that's too idealistic a way of thinking. Maybe it's too flowery of a concept. We live in such a busy, noisy world that maybe it's too impossible to think that the gospel is truly that focused on our hearts and minds. But why? Because trying hard, do better, work more, that's not been working. It hasn't worked for me. Rather, it's in those times when I can identify my own self-righteousness, my own lack of enjoyment of God. It is when I begin to dwell on and rest in the finished work of Christ that I hear the Spirit moving in me. There's that hymn that says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. And find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change this leper's spots and melt a heart of stone. It is the gospel that got this started and it is the gospel that will continue to carry us through until that day where we get to just rest in his presence. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your work off your knowledge, off your checklist, off your spiritual morality, and instead fix your eyes on Christ and him crucified. Because it is those who live by faith that are blessed, those who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. And it is those who, as we'll see next week, who can either live, we have a choice. We can either live by faith or we can live by the flesh. We can live by our works. One of those condemns us and one of those gives us life. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people, all the time. May we know that and understand that and actually live like we believe it. Let's pray.
God, you are good. You show it to us all the time, every day. Even in those common graces and those common things that we ignore, that we don't truly pay attention to all the time, you reveal your goodness. Sometimes we take it for granted, but you, you're there. Showing up, you're showing yourself to us. God, help us to rediscover, re-remind ourselves, re-examine, reconnect, realign ourselves with the gospel daily, moment by moment, the reality of what Christ did for us, the hopelessness we found ourselves in and the new life that we were granted, the love and mercy and grace and justice, these things that were poured out at the cross, these things that we have tasted and seen that are good, help those be the things that drive us in our lives. Let the truth of Christ and Him crucified change us, challenge us, shape us. Let it influence and affect every decision, every interaction. Because it is a life-changing reality. Lord, give us a hunger and thirst to know you more, to, to have a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation, a deeper reality and realization of the gospel. That we might know you better and glorify you in the way we live. That others might be pointed to you, that others might see and believe, that others might hear and believe. the reality and effects of the events of that weekend, that, that Friday and that Sunday. It changed everything. God, help us to live like it changes something. Lord, let us never take for granted. Let us never let go of the reality of the gospel, the reality of your love poured out for us. God, help us as we go to be lights of the world. We can only do that by and through our focus and fixation on the gospel, by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that we go to have this opportunity to be the lights of the world you made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.